I'm going to open if we can, but before we do, I got a, I got a pop quiz. I want everybody to jot down, if you can, um, as many apostles as you can think of. I'm talking about the first 12 that were enumerated in scriptures. Go ahead real quick, jot down as many as you can think of. Okay, And then, and only then, may you open up to Matthew chapter 9. Um, and we'll get started. So while I'm recapping, you can jot them down to see how many you can think of off the top of your head and then how many we're going to get correct. So in Matthew chapter 9, as we finished last week, we talked about that uh, God had or Jesus had come and he had healed uh, the two blind men and then he had healed the one that was possessed of the devil. And then it says that he went about in verse 35 of chapter Nine in Matthew that Jesus went about in all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. So in this section of scripture, you have Jesus going about teaching in their synagogues. And I love it when it talks about Jesus preaching the gospel of the kingdom. We're going to get to that in a little bit. But also healing every sickness and every disease among the people. And then moving with compassion on them. You know, we talked about this briefly last time and we talked about it this Thursday when we had our Thanksgiving meeting at Liberty that, you know, compassion is one of those defining characteristics of Jesus and that for us to call ourselves Christians, therefore we must reflect the characteristics of Jesus, which means we are to be compassionate people. That is just, that's something that's just a kind of aha, did you have a V8, duh kind of moment. We are to be compassionate in all things. That's just, that, that marks us, okay? That's what sets us apart. There is no other place that you can find unadulterated, uncompromising, un, no strings attached compassion. Now, you can always find compassion amongst the world, okay, in various different areas pertaining to various different things with various different motivations, okay? But if you're talking about a true, I don't care who you are, I don't care where you've come from, I love you as Christ loved you, compassion, that can only be found amongst those who believe and profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. So that compassion is a marker of what it is to be a follower of Jesus, to have compassion on strangers, on people who don't deserve it, on people who've not done anything for you. And in fact, even beyond that, as he has expounded it in Matthew chapter 5, to have compassion on people who have done you wrong. That is a marker of being a follower of Jesus Christ. And he says there that he had compassion on them because they fainted. It's really the word is more, I guess you could say, correctly described as being harassed. Okay, they weren't fainting like fainting goats. They were harassed. Okay, that's why they were scattered abroad and they were as sheep without having a shepherd. And this, this does fall back into a couple of different Old Testament areas that we're not going to jump into directly. But from Isaiah and from Ezekiel and from Jeremiah, um, there were plenty of scriptures that describe the state of Israel in particular, of his people, okay, Israel, that nation that he founded oh so many thousands of years ago when he uh, promised it to Abraham and led them out of the uh, Ur area of Chaldea and led them over into the area of Canaan, led them into the captivity and uh, Egypt that we talked about and we've been going through on Wednesday nights as we've been going through Exodus, led them out of Egypt, led them through the Red Sea, led them through the wilderness, made them wander for 40 years, and then finally gets them to Israel, the land that would be called Israel, and then ultimately through a couple of generations raises them up into a great nation. 
And so that promise to his people, as he describes and over and over again, you can go into the Old Testament, into the, uh, the prophets, and you can go into Micah, and you can go into Jeremiah, and you can go to other prophets that are prophesying about the coming judgment of his people. Um, but he continues to reflect a love for that nation and a promise that he made to Abraham oh so many years ago that he was not giving up on that. Okay, that he never, you know, that that covenant that he made with Abraham was not one that he was going to forsake. Um, now, Israel did a good job of walking away and turning away from God and blaspheming God and doing all things that were contrary to what God had taught them. But God was always there. God always said, you know, even in even in some of the most graphic language of the of the prophets where he's telling them, I'm going to send in a nation and they are going to kill every single one of you and they're going to destroy. I mean, all this stuff that you're like, yeah, man, that's tough right there, Lord. I mean, you're really laying it on the line. And yet you'd see refrains over and over again in these in these prophecies where God would tell. But if you would just return, if you would just come back, I will have compassion on you. Now, then you have a further prophecy that was wrapped up in those that pertains, like in this case, to Israel, where God said, but there's going to come a day I will return you, so to speak. He says, I will bring again, as it's described in this language, I will bring again the captivity, which means I will free you from the captivity. I will bring again my people. I will unify. I will reform. I will be to them a God. You shall be to me a people. A new covenant I'll make with them in that day. All these language that he says, I'm, don't worry, you're, I'm not going to leave you here for forever. We're going to make everything right. So here, though, he says, I'm having compassion on these people. When I see them in this state where they are harassed, they are scattered, and they're like a sheep without having a shepherd, then I have compassion on them. And then this is where he moves into. And like I said, in Jeremiah, there are sections of scripture there where he talks about and describes the people as being lost sheep. In Isaiah, he says that we are all as lost sheep. We have all gone astray. And Peter takes this up in uh, the first epistle of Peter. All this language, again, of this idea of these wayward sheep. That's the uh, picture that we get. And um, he's not specifying in particular here what we like to think of in the terms of you've got the sheep and then you got the goats and one's on the one hand and one's on the other. He's giving a word picture of a animal that they are all familiar with and how they look when they go astray. Okay, And so that's what he's giving the idea here. It's just like when sheep get scattered out, which is just it's very unique Okay, to that animal, and that's why he uses this says you need that shepherd to be able to bring them back into correction. You need that shepherd to be able to bring them back into the fold and have them in order and in rule again. So he gives that, a, that picture, and then he says, and I have compassion on them because it's a distressing thing for him to see. And if you go back again, and we didn't have time to do this, but if you go back again and you look in multiple places like in Micah and in Jeremiah, one of the condemnations against Israel at that time, now this is, again, this is some four, maybe even... 500 years from this point where Christ is preaching, okay, in the past, he would condemn the leaders of Israel at that time, and he would say that you as shepherds have actually led my people astray. You have forsaken your duty. You have corrupted your purpose. And he was saying you have scattered my people and you've destroyed my sheep in that way. And so here he says this is something that's always distressed him, okay, and so to see it here again, he has been moved by this compassion. And that's when he launches in and says, Then he said unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray you therefore that the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. harvest. Now, there's some dialogue there that needs to be had in one sense. Um, you know, Christ uses the picture of the harvest in a couple of different ways, Okay. One way that's very familiar to us is if you look in the parable when Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God, um, he will describe the kingdom of God in a parable saying that the kingdom of God is the world, and within the world you had the good seed that was sown, and it raised up wheat. And then the enemy came along and sowed tares in amongst it, and then it says you have this conundrum. What do you do? Because now you have the wheat there, and you have the tares, and the laborers, in that case which were the angels, 
um, came and said, well, what do you want us to do? You want us to go down here and pick out the tares? And God says, no, you wait, let them all grow up together because you don't know if you're going to pull up the tares or if you're going to pull up the wheat with the tares. And he said, so we will wait until the end of time when I bring all this to the end and then I will send my angels forth to cut it all down and then we'll separate the wheat from the tares. And it's a picture of the, the end judgment, okay? That the world is the kingdom of God and that within the world you have both the wheat or the good seed or the children of God and you also have the bad seed, the tares, the uh, children of the devil, so to speak, and both of them grow up simultaneously together in this place until the end when God divides it all up, okay? But that's not the labor or the harvest that is described here, okay? Um, number one, because in that parable, the labor and the harvest is all taking place between God and angels, and they're the ones who do the work. Here, we're talking about God sending forth laborers into this harvest, which is not going to be an end-time harvest, okay? So here, you're having a harvest of a a product here in this world while we are still in this world and the laborers are humans, okay? Um, called people that are sent out for his purpose. So it's a different harvest. So you always have to just make sure you're clarifying on that so you know which one you're talking about because obviously there's two different ones mentioned. Now, here comes the answer to the pop quiz. In Matthew chapter 10, we start off this. After he has said that, after he talks about praying to send forth laborers into his harvest, here Christ sends forth one group of laborers into his harvest, okay? Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, it says, And when he had called unto him twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles, now they're called apostles, are these. The first, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the publican or the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely ye have received, freely give. Pro uh, provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses, nor scrip for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves, for the workman is worthy of his meat. And into whatsoever city or town ye shall enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and there abide till ye go thence. And when ye come into a house, salute it. And if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it be not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words when you depart out of that city, shake off the dust of your feet. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city." Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. And ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. Now I'm going to stop just right there so that we can not get too deep into this and go back up and kind of refresh what we've already talked about. Now you have 12 apostles there. All right, they're called apostles there for the first time in that sense. They were first called disciples, just followers of Jesus. Apostle or apostolos, which is the Greek for one who is sent. Okay, that's simply what his name means. The apostles were those who were sent, those who were called out and sent in that way. So these are the first 12 apostles. Now, how many of us got them all right? You know, it is kind of a trick question. And here's why. Number one, you'll notice that there's one here named Labius or Thaddeus. Okay. That one, when you look at him over in the book of Luke, you're going to find a different set of apostles. You're going to find Simon Peter. You're going to find Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, and Simon called Zelotes, which is Simon Peter, or Simon the uh, Canaanite, sorry, Simon the Canaanite is listed in the other two sections in Mark and Matthew. But also there's Judas, the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot. So there's 
a little bit of a trick question there. So if you didn't get that right, you get bonus points. But here's what you have is just as we have noticed in Matthew and Mark, as we've gone through the different accounts, you'll note that there's kind of some differences there. Mark first describes Matthew, even though Mark here uses Matthew and says Matthew in verse 18 of Mark chapter 3. He, back previously when we've been looking at him and we looked at him when we were talking about Matthew being first called, he was called Levi, okay? So they have different names. Some of them have surnames and proper names and nicknames. It is important to notice that there are two Simons, okay? There is Simon Peter and then there is Simon Zelotes. Simon Peter is not Simon the Zealot, okay? So sometimes we look at Simon Peter, or uh, as, as that's how Christ describes him, I call you Peter or Petra. But we'll look at him and we'll be like, man, he sounds like the zealot. Okay, he sounds like a fire breathing. I'm rip-roaring ready to go. Simon Peter was not a zealot. Simon Peter was a fisherman. Okay, Simon the Canaanite is the one who, Canaanite is not Canaanite as in from Canaan. It's a Aramaic word that is actually referring to zealot. Okay, so that's where you get Simon Zelotes, which is Zelotes is the Greek of that. So zealot was a group of people, the zealots, okay, um, who are what we really use that word for today. When we say someone is a zealot, we say that they are overly zealous, uh, often to their detriment or to a kind of a fanatical, crazy level, okay? So a zealot would be like ISIS, okay? They're all zealots um, in a crazy, blow-yourself-up kind of way. Well, Simon the Zealot, or the Zealot group, was a very fanatical, very strict, almost like religious police order that uh, kind of a, kind of tied with the Pharisees, but not 100%, but they felt that their job was to go around and make sure everybody did what they were supposed to do and correct them in whatever fashion necessary, um, again, it was a very, uh, a very strict and aggressive group of people, okay? And again, that is something to note, and probably I think the next thing I'm going to do before we march through chapter 10 is I want to kind of do a life and times of each of the apostles and what they did and where they landed. But it is important to note, we talked about Levi, Matthew, and remember we talked about how interesting it was that Jesus chose him after his first picks. Okay, so the first picks are Simon Peter, who was a fisherman, and then you had uh, Andrew and you had Philip, the sons of thunder. You had um, James, who was also Peter's brother. The, and I mean, you, just, you had all these people who were mixed in there. All of them were fishermen, good, blue-collar, down-to-earth kind of people. Well, we talked about with Levi, it was kind of interesting. He made a divert kind of over to the side of, okay, we're getting into a little more of a socially unacceptable person, okay? This person was a Levi, uh, Levi was a uh, publican, he was a tax collector, was not well thought of amongst the Jews, and again, we talked about what a horrible PR decision to pick this guy, because none of the Jews are going to be very receptive to that. But then we talked about the greater principle being taught there, which was Jesus can make anybody new and anybody different. And we say, yeah, amen to that because he did that with me. He did that with Paul. Okay. We took a man who was a murderer and a destroyer of the church and we struck him down on a road and we made him the greatest apostle. So God can reform anybody. Okay. Here you have Simon the Zealot. And that again is another one of those cases. The Zealots were not like the best friends with everybody, okay? Because of how fanatical and aggressive they were, they made more enemies probably than they made friends. And so, again, you had this very aggressive, not middle lane, moderate person. You had a pretty aggressive guy that you're bringing into your fold now. And so, again, you're going to talk about it. Well, why would you do that? Some people are going to look at it and question your decision. You know, we saw that with the story of Paul. I know we keep going back to him, but you saw that with the story of Paul that even when Paul got started after he had kind of been anointed and everybody kind of saw that happen, even when he got started, some of the churches were going, I'm not really sure about this. I mean, this is Paul, right? Now, what are y'all trying to play here? Don't you know this is the guy that took off my cousin from the two towns over and had them fed the lions? I mean, this is Paul we're talking about, or I should say this is Saul of Tarsus we're talking about. What in the world do you mean you're going to bring him here? You invited him and he's bringing a covered dish. What are you talking about? It's, you don't do this with this guy. And so even, even in that case, in most Typically, in that case, you can hold up Paul, you can hold up Simon the Canaanites, you can hold up Pete, I mean, you can hold up Levi, and you can go, look at how God can take the people who you would look at and say they don't fit in with 
quote unquote that group. They don't match. They're not right on key. They are maybe in some cases the opposite of what you would expect. And look how God can take them and flip them 180 degrees and completely and profoundly change your life. Now, what's impactful about that is that we look at it with these people and we hold them up as these great examples and we say yes look how he turned paul who was a murderer into a preacher you know what a what a 180 that is okay but you know every single one of our lives are a 180 change okay every single one of our lives is a 180 change at some point You say, well, maybe I grew up in the church. Maybe I never was a murderer, thankfully, hopefully. We did do background checks, hopefully, before we let y'all in. But um, I, I wasn't a murderer. I wasn't a drug addict. I wasn't an adulterer. I wasn't all these things. I grew up in the church, and I've been holy my whole life. Well, maybe there's at one point that God turned you 180 from being a religious zealot that didn't really have compassion on people, didn't really have love as Christ loved people. You just had a lot of good religion And God turns you 180 degrees in the direction of what a true follower of Christ looks like. So we all have one. We all have been changed. I mean, that's just that's the new birth. It's not like God just took a good thing and made it a little bit better. Okay, He took a bad thing and He made it good. That's just that's the answer always. Well, I grew up in the church. I don't care. You were bad. Okay, whatever you were, you were 180 degrees in the opposite of directions of where God has you now. Okay, it's a change. It's a marked change in your life. So we see in those other cases, they have some different names, but they're the same people. It is important to grab that Simon uh, or that Thaddeus is a very important one, okay? Because Thaddeus is, and it's, it is kind of confusing because Mark lists his two of his names, Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus, but who was also called Judas. He was the Judas, Judas, not the other Judas, okay? That's kind of how he's described in other places. He was Judas, not the traitor, okay? Judas, not the one who betrayed uh, Jesus. Maybe that's why Matthew was taking a little grace on him and be like, well, you know, his name really was Thaddeus. We can just call him Thaddeus. Let's stick with that. Poor guy's going to have to go the rest of his gospel life with just saying, no, I was not that Judas, okay? All right, I wasn't that guy, all right? So, but here he's Judas, the brother of James, and it is thought that Um, this is the same Judas that if you look over in the book of Jude, okay, um, when you look at the uh, intro to the book of Jude, if you have a good um, study Bible or whatever that gives you the history of that, it is thought that this is Thaddeus. This is Judas, the brother of James, who wrote the book of Jude. So it is a important distinction to make, okay? But then we also have Judas Iscari Iscariot, who from the beginning is listed out as the traitor. Of course, we know Uh, his story, but you again, you look at the lives of the people that Christ put around him. But this is the commandment that they were given. As after he calls these twelve disciples, he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And it says that they departed and they went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now, if you look over in the book of Mark with this same kind of commandment, you will have that they also are sent out as he says there, you know, they there's kind of a grouping that you have to you got to go okay, which one is he talking about because all of these overlap. Luke 6 has the calling of the 12 of uh, uh, the 12 apostles. Luke 10 Um, has the sending out of the 70 that we're going to look at. Both of those have very similar stories. Matthew and Luke don't really talk about with the sending of the apostles of them sending them out in twos. Mark kind of mentions that, but then you also have the sending of the 70 as twos. So it's hard to, you know, okay, were the apostles sent out in twos? Were they not? Not 100%. I guess we're going to take Mark's word for it and that they were sent out as twos as well. But these people were sent out with a specific purpose, to preach the gospel of the kingdom And to heal the sick. Now, what I always, always kind of smile about or think about or enjoy looking at is that whenever someone in the now church time talks about the gospel, typically we flip over to 1 Corinthians 15 and we go, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's the gospel. Okay, That's what Paul said was the gospel. And that's what you know preaching the gospel is. You're preaching the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, the only kind of caveat I add to that is that Jesus and the apostles were preaching what is called the gospel before Jesus ever died, was buried, or resurrected. Okay? And as it says here, they were preaching the gospel of the kingdom. 
And in other places, he will tell them one simple thing that they were to tell people. They were to tell people to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, so that was their gospel message. Now, you can look and see that in Acts chapter two, when Peter gets up and preaches the gospel, he does a lot of stuff talking about things that are other than the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, he spends a whole historical canon going through everything with the fulfillment of all of these prophecies and everything. And he lands on Jesus and then he condemns the people and says, and you killed him. And then he gives them the same commandment that Jesus and John the Baptist were giving three and a half years earlier. Repent and be baptized for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The gospel has always involved that statement. Okay? It has always from its beginning, from the very first preachings of it by John and Jesus, it has involved that statement. Repent. And be baptized for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So here, when these people were sent out to preach the gospel, that's what they were preaching. They were preaching that people needed to repent and be baptized for the kingdom of heaven was at hand. The other thing that they were sent to do was to heal the sick. Now, not to get in too much like, you know, stuff with healings and giftings and all those things. These people were blessed with specific gifts. God, Christ, it says in other accounts, he gave them specific gifts. He gave them the power to cast out demons, those kind of things. In fact, as they come back in a few verses later, they'll actually marvel and tell Jesus that, hey, look what we can do. Even the devils are subject unto us. You know, all these things that they were geeking out about. Now, I will tell you that, you know, you can look at this and you can make a statement about these gifts being specifically given or this case being a specific case, but the gift of healing was carried forward and it was part of the New Testament giftings. That's in Ephesians and that's in uh, Corinthians and that's, that's, that's listed out in further gospels that are some 30, 40, and 50 years later. So, um, so there, is, there, there are accounts of the healing gift being given to other people besides just these 12 apostles and these 70 disciples that go forward. But those are two just very simple things. You know, he didn't get, there wasn't a lot of fluff to this, was there? There wasn't a lot of kind of extra stuff. There was, I mean, it's pretty cut and dry, pretty simple. He didn't say go in and have some kind of elaborate ritual. He didn't, you know, there was no kind of organization in some senses. It was just go forth, preach this gospel, and you heal everyone that you come in contact with. And again, I think the healing part of it very much followed with Jesus's example of compassion on everyone that he came in contact with. That when you see them go forward, he said, you heal all diseases in all places from everyone. Okay. He said, you're not discriminating. You're not. And even again, you know what we were talking about with describing the sheep scenario here. He is classifying Israel. Okay. The people of Israel as a group of lost people. Okay. He's saying the whole nation is gone astray. The whole nation is not where it should be. The whole nation is still under my covenantal rule that I am in control and I'm over them as their king and their lord. That's that's me. Okay, Israel is my people. And so he is commanding them to go out and to preach. And he doesn't say, you go find the ones that you think are lost or you go find the ones that you think are the ones that need to be preached to. He says, you just go out and preach. He says, you preach to is now he specifies at this point and says not to the Gentiles and not to the Samaritans. Now, Jesus has if if we try to get too much into that, Jesus has already been preaching to Samaritans and he's already been preaching to Gentiles. That's who was over in the Decapolis. And that was the woman at the well. Okay, but here he gives them the specific requirement. It's first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. That's what's regurgitated and reiterated all throughout Romans and other places that it was necessary first is what he says to it first to go to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. And Paul even says, and saying that you have found yourself unworthy of eternal life, lo, we go to the Gentiles. So he moves on in that case. But here you have him saying, I just want you to go to Israel. I want you to go to every city in Israel, and I want you to preach to them the gospel of the kingdom, repent and be baptized, and I want you to heal their sick. Very simple. It's a very simple commandment. There wasn't a lot to that. There wasn't a lot of depth to it. One simple commandment. This is, and again, it's one of those things that this has been going on since John the Baptist. This is what John was doing. John just went down to the river and everybody came out and he was telling them what they needed to do. 
In some cases, he asked them, why are you here? <laughs> Who told you to come out of there? Who told you to come out here? But otherwise, he's out there, he's preaching, and he's baptizing. Jesus picks that up and does the same thing. He goes all around the area of Galilee doing the same thing. But notice, too, that he sent them out. He sent them out. It's important for us to remember that from the beginning, we were always being sent out. There was no case for Jesus except one, which was when he told the apostles to hang out in Acts chapter 1 till the, gospel, till the Holy Ghost fell and anointed them. But otherwise, they were always sent out. Jesus didn't say, okay, guys, post up in Jerusalem and I'll bring everybody to you. He didn't say, post up in Galilee, I'll bring everybody to you. He said, go out. There was a picture of it moving away from just some clustered up group of whatever they wanted to be called at that time, crazy folks to a lot of people. There was always a push for them to go out. You were to go out. When he ends up sending the 70, it's the same thing. Go before me to every city. Go out. When you get past Acts chapter 1, the next step of the church is out. Okay, It started at Jerusalem, but it went very far out. Okay? So we always have this picture of the church moving outside of itself. That we're not a nunnery and we are not a uh, monastery and we don't cloister ourselves in and lock the doors and say, well, if somebody finds us, great, but... No, we're always outside of ourselves. We're always outside of our local little clique. We're always moving out away from the tendency of ourselves to huddle together and not let anybody in or only let those people in who happen to stumble upon us. That's just not been the picture. So when we think about what it is when we're dealing with the gospel and we're talking about what that is, these are this is the the point of the gospel has not just been to look at what Christ did and stop there. Okay? So a lot of times when we look at 1 Corinthians 15 and people talk about, well, what's the gospel? People talk about preaching the gospel. Well, this is what it is. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then talk about it from a past tense point of view, and that's the sum total of the gospel. But that's not the sum total of the gospel. The gospel has always been about, yes, what Christ has done. And in, even with Christ and the disciples teaching, I'm almost certain they went back and used Old Testament things to prophesy about the Messiah and who's coming and those kind of things. But it was always, there was always a connection to, now get up, repent, and be baptized. That was always there. All the way back to the beginning. There's never been a point when he looked at him and said, everything's taken care of, don't worry about it. Or this isn't essential. Don't worry about it. Do it if you want to. You'll have a great life. But otherwise, it's not. It's that's the gospel has always been. You need to repent and be baptized and follow God. That's 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 been the prime message of the gospel since Jesus has been preaching it. So now we follow through with like Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We, Paul uses that section of scripture not to say this is all you ever teach about the gospel, but rather this is why you repent and you're baptized because Jesus came, died, and was buried, and was resurrected. Okay. So we have to make sure that we're not leaving one side of that out or else that's, it's kind of, we're only telling half the story. So it's important for us to remember that, to remember what he's done, but also that we have a commandment. We have an essential requirement to do what God told us to do. So as he continues on in that section, if you flip over to Luke chapter 10, you also have the sending out of the 70. Now, again, you they don't use the word disciple when they're talking about these 70, it just says in Luke chapter 10 that he appointed other 70 also. Well, we also know that these are not apostles, as they're called apostolos, because number one, it's not used there. But number two, um, the, there were only 12. Okay, so we kind of know that. But here he appointed 70 others. Okay, 70 others of his disciples that he sent out to do this as well. And you say, well, why are we including this in here? Because in Luke's account, the statement that we saw in Matthew chapter 9 about the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray you therefore the Lord of the harvest would send laborers. Well, in Luke's account, it's with the 70 that he said that. Okay, So you have probably, if you were to push them all together, both the 12 and the 70 were more than likely sent out at the same time. Okay. 
Um, but either way, if they're not or they are, either way, Jesus is using the same statement to justify both. Okay? Jesus uses the statement of the harvest being full and needful, that he sends out the 12, and he also sends it out with the 70. But the 70 are not described or given any kind of, I guess you could say, qualifiers as the apostles were with the apostles we know the apostles we know they were called we know that in Matt, in uh, ephesians jesus says there are first some apostles and then some prophets and some pastors and teachers and so we have that god did give specific gifts to specific people and that there's a difference with that with these 70 there's not really a qualifier we don't know who these are we don't know if these were just 70 disciples that were just called to go forth in a lay fashion we don't know if it's 70 disciples Disciples that he then on the spot ordained to be pastors and teachers. That's not really clarified and that's not really implied. Maybe there's 70 evangelists that were called in that gift. You don't really have a clarification. But what you can see is that whatever it ties with, okay, whether these are ordained elders, whether these are pastors and teachers, whether these are evangelists, or whether these are just lay people, they were given a similar commandment as the apostles were at this point which was go forth and go into all of these cities and go to tell them the kingdom of god is come nigh unto you and to heal the sick that are there now again these 70 are not ever mentioned again so you have to get the kind of implication that these this was a temporary thing for them okay we know part of their commandment was definitely temporary, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But you have a very similar laying out of their duties as was the apostles at this point. Now, obviously, we know after Jesus was resurrected, the apostles took on a very different role, and there wasn't anybody else mentioned. It was just the apostles at that time. You only had the 11 there at, or well, it ended up being 13, but you only had the, uh, the apostles there mentioned in Acts chapter 2, and you only have the apostles mentioned as they go forward. You don't see a lot of description of, oh, plus there was the 70 that Christ ordained so many years ago, and they were sent out as well. That's not really there. So it's a little bit enigmatic in the sense that you don't know what happens to them. You don't know what all their qualifications were. You don't know what they, you know, you don't know some things about them, but what you do know is that Christ told them this. You 70 are going to go out in twos and you are going to go and you're going to teach or you're going to tell each city you come to that the kingdom of, the kingdom of God is nigh unto you. And they have very similar kind of uh, prescriptions about uh, no purse, no script, no shoes, um, you know, all these things. I heard one person say, see, no script. And somebody tried to say that that's why you don't have notes up in the stand when you're preaching. Um, not the same kind of script. Uh, first off, there's no T, number one. And number two, this is talking about a script or a written letter of endorsement or a uh, monetary thing. So it's not necessarily talking about having notes in the stand, but uh, to each their own. Anyway, as he goes forward, from this though he does tell them that there's certain things like you're to bless these people if they receive you and you're to heal the sick and that any city that you go into that doesn't receive you you can shake the dust off so that shaking off the dust thing by the way that was a jewish practice particularly when the jews went into samaria or they went into the gentile lands when they came out of them they shook the dust off their clothes okay because you know they're holy and they just went into a dirty place okay um so we don't do that all right so we shake the dust off so that we're not tainted by uh, the dust of the gentile lands okay so you can kind of get a picture of how uh, kind of high-minded and holy roller they were. Uh, but that was kind of the idea that uh, God gives here for these people. He says, if you go into a city that does not receive you, it's the same thing. You shake the dust off your feet, okay? And so he gives them this commandment, but he also gives them an interesting, for them and the apostles, there is kind of an interesting play out here. That it was more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than it would be for that city that does not receive you. We talked about this, I think, briefly when we were going through Genesis and we talked about Sodom and Gomorrah, and then we talked about the New Testament kind of repeat iterations of Sodom and Gomorrah. And actually, on down here as he goes through it, he'll start going off on all these different cities. It would be better for you, woe Chorazin, woe Bethsaida. is better for you, Chorazin, Bethsaida, than Sodom and Gomorrah and Tyre and Sidon and all these things. But what is interesting is, you remember the sins and the debauchery and the wickedness of those cities, of Sodom, Gomorrah, 
Tyre, Sidon. They were considered to be like the worst scum of the earth places doing all sorts of things that were just the antithesis to God and what he stood for. And so like in the cases of Sodom and Gomorrah, God obliterated them from the earth. Well, in this case, God is now elevating for these people. The people who do not receive you, receive the gospel, receive what I have sent you for. That those people in those cities is more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for them. So that's why, I, and I press on that for a reason. Because that is telling us that the gospel and God's message and God's word as it has been brought out in Jesus' time is infinitely weighty, infinitely um, treasured in that sense, infinitely more that God respects it so much of what's going on here that he says, for these people to reject that, it is worse for, for them than Sodom and Gomorrah. That gives us kind of a view into how God viewed the gospel and what was going on right here. He said it was not a light thing. Now, sometimes we treat it that way. And sometimes we'll say, yeah, it'd be good if you, if you believe the gospel. It'd be good if you follow the gospel. Man, your life would be better. You'd have all these blessings. But God gives a very weighty and hard line on this. And he says, this is not just some trivial thing. This is not a Joel Olstein book, and this is not your best life now. This is my word expressed through my living son who has come here to die, and I treat it pretty doggone important. So he gives us an implication that he is very serious about this. So as he goes forward... And what we should consider in all this... Oh, and, and another point, which is very interesting. There's 70 of them, okay? Now, we talked about, again, as we went through Genesis, we talked about how if you look at the separating of the nations there in Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8, when you have the ta what they call the table of nations, when they talk about the sons of uh, Noah, of Shem, Japheth, and Ham, and they talk about all their descendants, okay? Um, and that's in, in uh, Genesis chapter 10, that's referred to as the table of nations. Why? Because those three descendants and their subsequent descendants, um, you know, they were the human race after that, okay? Wiped the slate clean, you got three men coming off the ship, and they end up fathering the rest of the world that we know today. So you have that table of nations. Well, there's 70 people in those generations, okay? There is... 30 from Ham, there's 26 from Shem, and there's 14 from Japheth, who are listed there in that table of nations in chapter 9, chapter 10. Now, those generations were then scattered because of Babel, okay? And we, again, we talked about this a little bit when we were going through Genesis because we talked about at Genesis when um, God scatters the nations at, at the Tower of Babel, that, you know, you have this splitting apart of humanity, but then in like the very next chapter, he talks with Abraham and he makes a covenant that he's going to one day bless all nations through Abraham. And we talked about the starting of that process of when God was going to kind of reunify in that sense. Well, we, we over and over again said it's epitomized in Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And here you get, if you want to follow that route, if I kind of do, I think it's an interesting kind of thing why he chose 70 and why these 70 are here and why they're included and they're only in, you know I, I kind of go back to it's very interesting that there were 70 generations that were split up at babel and there's 70 men going forth to preach and to reunify in one kingdom a people out of every nation kindred tongue and tribe on the face of the earth okay in the beginning of the preaching of the gospel here so the kingdom of God that Jesus brings with him is a unifier of all of these nationalities that were all split up from Genesis. Okay, So you have people who are from China, Asia, uh, from Africa, from Canada, all of these people of different ethnic origins that can trace back to different people, but they are all of the same kingdom in the kingdom of God. So it's just a very interesting and neat thing. So why there's 70? There could be some other arbitrary reason. Who knows? Maybe God just liked the number 70. Don't know. But it just seems interesting to me. And that's what, you know, uh, some people will kind of look at that and tie both of those together. So going forward and to close with this, when you look at the kind of common command that was given to the apostles and to the 70, you know, 
you can think if you want to, and again, with when you think about is it to the apostles, is it to uh, elders, is it to lay people? You know, when I thought of these two going or these seventy going out in twos, you have the case of Priscilla and Aquila. Now I know they're husband and wife, and that's you know kind of just do stuff together. Okay, uh, that's just a that is a biblical example of why husbands and wives should do things together. Okay, because there you go, Priscilla and Aquila is our great example. But you have Priscilla and Aquila who are going around after they were expelled from Rome and they catch up with Apollos and they hear him preaching and they go and expound the gospel more perfectly to him. Okay, So you have examples in the Bible like Priscilla and Aquila, like Lydia, and I know she's just one, but like Lydia and others who are lay people in that sense. They're not ordained, called elders, pastors, or whatever, but they are very simply what we have preached over and over again. They are telling other people about the gospel of the kingdom of God, okay? It did not require some special certification other than the one that you received when God said that you were called to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ with the ministry of reconciliation, that we are called to preach and teach the kingdom of God wherever we are at, that we're called to say, I'm a part of something different. I'm a part of, you want to know compassion? Well, this is the compassion that the kingdom of God teaches. You want to know love and you want to know forgiveness and you want to know direction and identity and all these things. Well, this is what the kingdom of God teaches. So we've had this picture in both the 70 and with the apostles that there's a very simple formula. There is no vast theological training necessary in these cases. There's no, I mean, in these cases, you have very simple, common people going forth with a very powerful but simple message. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent because of what Jesus has done. Repent and follow after him. As he told the Gadarene man, go tell the people around you the great things God has done for you and the compassion that he has had on you. You see that word compassion come up again. So evangelism and, and, and that kind of, as, they, as it would be described, like an emissional mindset. People will say, well, we're, you know, mission's not in the Bible. That's why we don't use that word or whatever. But these, these two groups of people were set on missions. This is your mission, okay? It's very much just an army, uh, you know, military term. You have a mission. This is what your mission is. Or if you're thinking mission impossible, you know, this is your mission if you choose to accept it, you know, all that stuff. This is the idea. You have a mission, okay? Your mission is to go forth and to tell people about the kingdom of God in every city that I go to. To, and here's your parameters for it. Well, this is, the, this is the New Testament church model. This is what we were all based on. That's how we got here. Okay, you wonder how you got a church in Alabama. Well, it wasn't always here. We didn't spring up from the ground. There was missionally minded people a long time ago who decided to move in this direction. So we always have this concept of evangelism and mission-based work in our minds. Whether that mission is just going to your family, going to your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, or if it's going to Africa or China or wherever it may be. But we always have this mindset. And, and just to clarify one final thing, these parameters that are set out for these people are not the end parameters for how all missions are to be done forever. Okay, So I have heard it said over and over and over again, well, if you're going to do mission work, that's fine, but you have to be called like Cornelius called Peter, and you have to be, uh, you can't take any money with you or an extra pair of shoes or all this stuff. You can't be organized. You can't have any of that because that's what he says. You know, don't take a script. Don't take a purse. Don't take a staff. You're just supposed to hop on a plane and go wherever God sends you. Yeah, but number one, this is just to these people. Number two, it's corrected in Luke chapter 23. Christ changes the, the flips the script, so to speak, and says, but now you can take a purse now take a script now take a sword now take a gar- i mean so this these were not meant to be the defining things that you look at and say this is how you do all mission work for the rest of the church okay and in fact you could go through the new testament and you could find multiple different answers and different places where that is brought forth but these are these two groups of people are examples for us as far as what our mindset should be Our mindset should be outside of ourselves. Our mindset should be that we are called of God and we have a mission and we have a purpose. This is not just for our self-gratification. 
This is not just for us to feel good about ourselves. This is not just for us to be able to walk in here on a Sunday morning and walk out on a Sunday evening and go, man, I did a good thing today. I took up that cross. I had to get up at 10. I took up that cross. I stayed in church for an hour and a half or maybe two. That was not what this was all about. There was more to this. It expanded beyond just our own little selves. And so I hope that we will look at these things and take these things and that we will maybe, you know, seek God to direct us in these things that we can see how can I be more in tune, more in line, more evangelistic, more missional, more things that line up with these stories that we have, these pictures that we have. Because what I want us to get back to as we've gone through this, are we following Jesus Christ? Are we following what he told us to do? Are we keeping in line with what he laid out for us to be? And what examples do we have to go off that? So may God bless us to continue to work on these things.